Every minute of Narrative's reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative, where truth lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Narrative. In just the last few days, we've begun to hear even more truths about what really happened on January the 6th. Cassidy Hutchinson reveals in her new book that former President Trump himself led the chanting to hang Mike Pence, his vice president, from inside the Oval Office. We've heard from Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, recount how close America came to a full stop of our Constitution. There are just so many revelations in every news day, it really is very hard to keep track. So it's precisely because of that that tonight we're going to slow talk our way through one of the news headlines from the last few weeks, which barely registered, but which until this moment is still the most significant headline of January the 6th. Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio getting 22 years in federal prison for seditious conspiracy and other charges related to the riot. Tarrio received one of the longest sentences yet for his role in the January the 6th Capitol insurrection, even though he wasn't even at the Capitol on the day of the event. Prosecutors say he was absolutely instrumental in planning and organizing the Proud Boys' participation. And my guest today is Brandy Buckman, an independent reporter who has been covering the Tario trial and sentencing. We're going to discuss the courtroom atmosphere during Tario's sentencing, along with his apology. Was it sincere? And also, what does all this lengthy sentence mean for the future of the Proud Boys organization? So, Brandy, you were in the courtroom as the sentencing came down, and I, it was really riveting reading your incredible a thread that day about how emotional that day was. And we all think of uh, Enrique Tarrio as this tough guy, perhaps white nationalist, but then suddenly at the end of, of all of this trial came this sort of more real version of who he might be as a human being. So who is Enrique Tarrio? I think first, an important thing to note about sentencings are it's a chance for defendants to basically make their last best effort and their last best impression for the judge because the judge holds their fight. And I think that the person Tario put himself, uh, put himself out to be when he was being sentenced was someone who might have been more remorseful than he actually was. Uh, we did see in the days after he was sentenced, um, that he pretty much went right back to talking politics and talking about how Trump had to be reelected in 2024 because his presidential pardon, he hopes, would depend on it. Um, but as far as who Tario is, I think that says a lot about who he is in a nutshell. Um, as a founder of the Proud Boys, he moved up the ranks and assumed this leadership position of an organization that promotes not just a white supremacist philosophy when you boil it down to it, even though they would deny that that's the case. It also promotes this Western, West is best, men first, misogynist, just anti-diversity view of the world. And so he really embodied that when he was at the height of his popularity. And he would go out with his sunglasses and his cap and his cigarettes, and he would be very macho and masculine. We saw somebody in court who was wearing a prison jumpsuit once realities snuck in there and who realized, I think to some degree it was true, 
that the damage she had done to his family was real and that the pain for them was very real. And we did hear about that from some folks at court. He came from a history of being a minor criminal in Miami, a short record, but a significant record in terms of, of crime. How did this yeah. of Cuban-American land up becoming a, a face of white nationalism? He just got himself so involved with, I think, the Gavin McGinnises of that organization who founded the Proud Boys and had put himself out and was friendly with Roger Stone, was friendly with a bunch of Trump World affiliates. And I think that once 2016 happened, once 2020 really happened, in terms of all of the civil unrest that was going on, the Proud, Proud Boys as an organization for Tario, he really saw that as an opportunity to grow them out and make themselves more of a name brand. Because in the years prior to that, he took his sort of razzle-dazzle marketing for Proud Boys approach to different rallies or different events, different situations where there was civil unrest to act as the pushback to the leftist movement. So I think that a lot of these extremists, for him, it was about opportunity. And the opportunity was wide open with Trump. And what we did see at trial and what we learned and heard through testimony was that once Trump had said to them in September at the presidential debates that you know, they should stand back and stand by, the numbers of Proud Boys who started signing up for recruitment exploded. And it set about a sequence of events that led Tario to where he finds himself today. Mm. That is an incredible split screen. If you think about Donald Trump saying, stand back and stand by. And then his family pleading for mercy before the judge in that sentencing day. What was his mother saying to the court in pleading for her son's adult life? The interesting thing was that she put him out as this figure who had always respected law enforcement. And this was a key contention at the trial for him because part of the prosecution's argument in the seditious conspiracy allegation was that the Proud Boys had essentially went from tolerating law enforcement, liking cops, being on the sides of cops, to somewhere in December taking a major turn away from them and then using this anti-police attitude that had ramped up since one of their own had been stabbed at this event in D.C. to stop the steel rally in D.C. He totally went in about face with law enforcement. And Tario's mother commended him about how upstanding he had been and how he'd always respected police and he had always respected law and order. But we didn't see that. We didn't see that in the evidence of his communications. We didn't see that in his actions. He's had multiple run-ins with the law himself. And key to that argument was one of the officers who he had said he had uh, given basically advance notice to that the Proud Boys would be showing up on the 6th and not to worry and everything was above board. Um, this officer also is now under investigation for improper relationships with Tario because when we looked at some of the text messages in court, they weren't particularly helpful to the police. They were helpful to Tario. It was essentially he was pumping them, it looked like, for info. I mean, there is the sense around him, isn't there, that he was either an informant or cooperating with police or cooperating with elements within the police, or it was never really clear where on the line of law and order he, he stood. But you're saying that there might have been some corrupt elements within the police that were being used or either willingly or unwittingly being used to influence what uh, the police response would be? That's correct. Yes, there's an officer named uh, Shane Lamond 
who I believe he's still suspended. I know that uh, he was charged. He's under investigation. He's denied all wrongdoing. But essentially, that was what we saw at trial, was how he would utilize the officer, being friendly with the officer in a situation that would seem like a typical informant relationship. But really, their relationship was inappropriate by the looks of the text messages and a little bit too close. And so that's what Tario does. And that's what we saw, too, with just members of his organization, is he figures out what he needs from each individual and then manipulates the situation to go along with that. But he also surrounds himself with people who are more than happy to be his foot soldiers. It's not a big lift for him, I don't think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that he's charismatic, maybe the word to use, that he's able to capture the, the minds and hearts of all these grown adult men who start calling yeah. him boss or whatever it is they were calling him, and, and suddenly listening to his orders. It, was it his charisma? Was it their lack of guiding force in their lives? What was it that was driving to follow him? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the two. Look, Mario is a charismatic figure. When you see him talking at rallies or you see him, what, what we saw at trial in his private meetings with his men, he's funny, he's likable, he's charming. You can have a rational discussion with him to a certain point, whereas other extremists, you might not be able to have any rational discussion. And that is a big draw for him. But I think the other part of that, too, is it's, it takes two to tango, right? You needed guys who wanted to look for someone to fill these voids in their life or to satisfy what they believed about the state of the world or the state of the U.S. government or what was going to happen. Certainly across both the Oath Keepers seditious conspiracy trials and the Proud Boys seditious conspiracy trials, the big takeaway that I had from all of these situations was a lot of these people wouldn't be in this situation if they had better friends or better hobbies. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of lonely people out there. It's interesting as well that he wasn't there on January the 6th. Of all the people to get the longest sentence of anybody for this event on January the 6th so far, he wasn't even there. Called by police to leave the night before, and he did. He left the night before after sort of an unusual huddle with the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, the night before, but he did leave. How could prosecutors get away with requesting even a sentence so high when he wasn't even on site? The big thing with this is that for prosecutors, it was about what was the intent and how did your leadership position over this conspiracy operate? Because Tario didn't need to be in, in the Capitol or on the Capitol grounds to be communicating with Proud Boys, which he was. He told them while the rioting was going on, don't effing leave. When he was posting messages on social media. He was taking responsibility for it, pumping up anyone who was watching while we know law enforcement is trying to shut this down, which is, it's a big conflict with what he said at his sentencing and what he has said since his sentencing, which is, if I would have been there, things like this wouldn't have happened. That's precisely what he said. And we know that's not to be the case. But I think that the point that the government was trying to make and that what the point that was being made by the judge was such a harsh sentence was that given the evidence, given his leadership position, given the weeks of maneuvering that went into this, and given the fact that there was evidence that came out at trial that he timed his arrest on January 4th so that he could have an alibi to not be in D.C. on January 6th, 
How did he climb his well, Had Remember, he had insight from the officer in D.C., mm-hmm. Shane Lamond, that he was potentially facing arrest should he come into the district. Now, he knew that there was a warrant out for his arrest, and we saw messages between Biggs, Joe Biggs, one of his co-defendants, and others discussing this. And Jeremy Bertino, who was convicted of seditious conspiracy and pled guilty before the trial even began, there was some information that came out that made it seem that, yeah, he knew he was going to be arrested, and it gave him a perfect alibi to say, oh, I can't be in D.C. That really does color the story a lot. Why did he not want to be there? Just to hide from law enforcement or because he knew what a you know disaster was about to unfold? That's what the jury concluded, was that there was a criminal conspiracy to stop the transfer of power. And that when we saw and when the jury saw the messages leading up to the six, they knew once Tario had been arrested that Biggs and Nordine would have to step in his place, and they were ready and willing to take over. They talked about this, I believe, as early as January 2nd or 3rd, that if anything happened to Tario, that this is this is what to do. And you have to remember, on the day of the 6th, there were people marching around D.C. that had shirts that said, Enrique Tario did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. They were talking about his burning of the flag in December that got him arrested on the 4th. So they had all of this opportunity to create T-shirts, yeah. to create social media marketing. So you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of things there that sort of indicate to us that Torrio is a lot smarter than folks may be willing to give him credit for. Still ended up with a big sentence, didn't he? So that's a number of interesting things there. One of them is that there were all these events leading up to January the 6th. Like, I think most people still in their mind think of January the 6th as an event that happened in response to an election that Donald Trump didn't win. But that's not really the origin of, of January the 6th. It began many weeks, even before the Stop and Steal campaign started, well before the elections took place. And then it's, it proceeded right after the election in a very organized way. There were a number of events that led up to January the 6th, all the way through December and November, and, and each of them progressively more violent and more active. And it certainly seems like they were either being trained into doing what they were going to do on January the 6th or being influenced in a way to be, to behave that way. Or I'm not sure what the purpose of those events were, but it certainly created a, an organized feel that they would feel comfortable, confident, and, and ready to do what they did on January the 6th. Yeah, I definitely think that, that there's some truth into that because we had two major rallies that both of the seditious conspiracy trials focused on as the preamble to January 6th. That was the Stop the Steel rally in uh, November and then the one in December. They were each each roughly about a month apart. Um, Both of them were heavily promoted, heavily attended by Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, Trump affiliates, members in Trump's uh, campaign for for the year, for 2020. Um, And what we saw was that after the December rally, when we had the violent incident where Jeremy Bertino, one of the Proud Boys, had been stabbed, What we saw was within about a week, the Proud Boys, in conjunction with Trump's tweet on December 19th, 2020, inviting people to come down to D.C. for the sex, the Proud Boys created that same night uh, a subdivision called the Ministry of Self-Defense. And what that ministry did was it allowed them to put up the, I, I would argue, the edifice of, we need to protect ourselves at these rallies because things are going to get crazy. 
And now that Trump has said there's this wild rally coming, we really need to know how to deal with Antifa. We need to know how to deal with the police. We need to do. And so those all of the ramping up that happened absolutely was instrumental in building to the crescendo of January 6th before anybody even knew, I think, that January 6th was going to be a thing. Trump said in September of 2020 that he was not going to accept the results of the election if he didn't win. Yeah. There's a clip from Roger Stone talking about Stop the Steal and martial law on Alex Jones, also from September of 2020. The prosecution, I think, mentioned Tario as the general of the Proud Boys, and maybe that's exactly who he was. But in some ways, I think of him more as a bit of a field commander, and because the real general, in some ways, maybe it's the spiritual godfather, if you will, I don't know, of the Proud Boys is Roger Stone, which is, here he is in 2016 in, in, in Oregon hanging out with the Proud Boys, I think, well before Tario was even a member. And it's very infancy as the Proud Boys were being launched. With Alex Jones retweeting this photograph, uh, you know, yeah. the, the origins of uh, the Proud Boys feature Roger Stone quite dramatically and quite emphatically, and then it continues all the way through. He did take an oath to the Proud Boys as well. That's um, right. And, and certainly they were with him, Tario was with him, and many of the other Proud Boys, with him all the way until January the 6th. It's only on January the 6th. It suddenly we saw the Oath Keepers playing security for Roger Stone and not Atario. And yet, Atario is going to jail. Roger Stone is still out there living the life. Yeah. Did he talk about Stone? Did he mention him on the trial? Did, was the, did Roger Stone come up? Roger Stone came up, I would say, infrequently in the trial. And I think that there was a strategy for this, for the prosecution. He would come up when it would be discussed about Proud Boys operating essentially as security guards on the 6th. But really, I think that the prosecution made the calculated decision of keeping the bulk of their discussions to the specific defendants. And that even, even when we're talking about other alleged and now convicted seditious conspirators, Oathkeeper Alma Rhodes, prosecution really made a a, a, an effort to not really bring that in because they didn't want to have hearsay arguments. They didn't want to get into free speech arguments with the defense. The calculated decision to leave Roger Stone out of it might have been, at least as far as I know, might have been related to just trying to keep it uh, as clean as they could for what was already a massively sprawling and complex case. We now know that the, this attempt to steal the elections preceded the actual election. You've got Donald Trump, Roger Stone, Alex Jones, Michael Flynn, whomever, uh, Steve Bannon, all conspiring this event, this January the 6th event. And yet, so far, we've only seen those supposed foot soldiers, let's call them foot soldiers, being arrested. Do they expect, if Donald Trump is re-elected, do they expect that he's actually going to come through for them and, and let them off, give them a pardon? I think so. I think absolutely they do. A couple of days after Tario was sentenced, he gave an interview saying, or not a couple of days, but I think it was like a week at least, he gave an interview saying that he expected Trump to pardon him and would want Trump to pardon him if he was reelected. And he put out a few messages saying, you have to vote for Trump in 2024 because that's the only way that we're pardoned. Ethan Nordine, one of the other co-defendant Proud Boys convicted of seditious conspiracy, he got I believe it was 18 years. So he got another very stiff sentence. Him too. He has pretty much said the same. Joseph Biggs has said the same. They all are betting all of their 
all of their wages here on Trump, saving them, which should come as no surprise to anybody. They, even if Trump has not indicated that he's trustworthy to the average person with the average intelligence that can see the writing on the wall, these folks, I think, are really bought in to this belief that he's a savior, that he's a hero, that the world can only be righted if he's in charge of it. And anything without him is just going to fall short of that. Now, incidentally, as we're sitting here talking today, this was the day that Torrio and some of the other co-defendants finally were transferred to jail for the duration of their sentences. All of the talking that happened in the last few weeks might seem to quiet down, but I would doubt it. I think that especially Tario survives on attention and thrives on it. So as long as Trump is out there beating the drum, and Trump also said in an interview himself, he would consider a pardon for Tario. So there's nothing I don't think to convince him otherwise that it's a possibility for him. That is interesting, considering he seemed to be, or seemed to say the words, that he was remorseful. He seemed to say that he didn't want January the 6th to have happened the way it did, and yet he still supports Donald Trump today. How, do you, how does he explain that contradiction? How would you try to explain his contradiction? They likely don't believe the nice things that they say when they're in a federal courtroom before a judge. Mm-hmm. When Dominic Pozzola, one of the other Proud Boys, who was not convicted of seditious conspiracy, but who was convicted on several other charges and was sentenced to 10 years, It literally was a span of maybe two minutes, and I'm being generous, where he was before the judge, crying, blubbering about how sorry he was, and said he would never be involved with politics again. Those were his words. I will never be involved with politics again. And then quite literally, as soon as his sentencing was over, he went to walk out the door, put his fist up in the air, pumped it, and said, Trump won. There's not a lot of logic to be found Mm. in some of the reasons why these folks will just so blindly follow this guy after he's gotten them in so much trouble and they've allowed themselves to get in so much trouble. But yeah, I don't, I just think that they're, they're bought in and they're willing to play the game. So it, it still means that this very potent force that is the Proud Boys remains a potent force against democracy. And once they're released from prison, which, you know, won't be 22 years, it'll be much sooner than that. You know, that this is still a force that could still be targeting democracy well after they're released from prison. The thing that these trials did was that they did help to hobble the Oath Keepers as an organization, the Proud Boys as an organization. And it did put it out there, what will happen if you attempt to stop the transfer of power, if you attempt to use violence as a means uh, for your political ends. But yes, indeed, they likely will not serve the duration of their sentences. They have to, I believe the regulations, they have to at least serve 85% of it. So still quite a long time for all of them to be in jail. But the reality is that so long as these ideas pervade and are mainstreamed into society or propped up by politicians who are running for very powerful offices in the United States, this stuff will not go away. Though we know, and I've talked to different experts on domestic terrorism in particular who say the sentences, they're not a great deterrent. What they do is they help dismantle these organizations financially. They help run some folks underground. But what we're dealing with now is still very much in play. Trump is still out there saying things to excite people, to potentially incite violent acts against other individuals as he's facing his own criminal indictments. 
So I don't think that them being in jail is going to stop this. There will always be someone to come in under the cracks. I think it's left to everybody who sees the writing on the wall to take responsibility and fight for real dem- for real democracy and not a government run by a person who wants to be a tin pot dictator. Mm. Now, Tario intends to appeal, presumably. I think uh, definitely he's going to appeal. I think all of them have indicated that they will appeal. Many of the Oath Keepers are appealing as well. I think that's a long, arduous process. And I think that based on the way that they were sentenced, the way that their convictions came down, overarchingly, they're going to have a tough time trying to get past this bar. Um, what we saw were judges hand down sentences where they did describe uh, or did enhance the charges with terrorism enhancements. This was a violent effort to stop the transfer of power. With or without a plan that was found, written down, there was sufficient evidence for a jury to convict. And the judge also, he denied motions for acquittal. He denied attempts to retry the entire thing. He was very clear about it in the Proud Boys case that what they did was very serious. And while he did not feel, the judge, he did not feel that what the Proud Boys did rose to the level of intent to kill officials, which I think is a interesting decision. <laughs> he still was very adamant about how serious their efforts were and how what they did was they stopped a more than 200-year tradition of a peaceful transfer of power. And never will we have that uh, tradition back. We have to restart that now. Mm. Such a good point. And the fact that it, they, there may not have been a plan written down doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't a plan. Ultimately, it seems like they had one. It seems like they really were organized enough to do what they did. And that doesn't, this portends badly for what might happen in the future. We just, now that they've seen the lay of the land, they've seen the cracks in the in the, in, in the procedures in, in, in Capitol Hill, there are ways for them to strike again. And this could happen again in future uh, elections, which is just quite terrifying for all of us who've been at this for way too long. Now, Brady, this is also a very personal trial for you. I don't know how many four-month trials you've sat through before, but that's a long time to dedicate to one story. What is it like sitting in a courtroom there for four months, day in and day out, and just living and breathing it, this uh, conspiracy? Yeah. Look, I had been covering January 6th uh, since the day that it happened, and I had been covering this whole, everything that happened before January 6th prior to that. And so getting to this stage where we were actually seeing some of the folks who were responsible for the violence, going through the very system that they tried to tear apart, literal blocks away from where all of this happened, it was surreal at times. And a lot of the material it was already very familiar with. So it wasn't a lot of particularly shocking stuff that came out of it for me. However, that being said, it was definitely very intense to see these proud boys testify on their own behalf and put up their defense to what we all saw happen on January 6th. It was a long slog, and I would not recommend covering four-month trials to anyone if they can avoid it. But it definitely, it was a really great experience in terms of me being a journalist covering this for a long time and getting to see everything from the beginning to the end. And I, I would not go back and change it for anything. And I'm writing a book about these trials specifically because I just spent so much time enmeshed in this. That's so important. I'm so glad you are writing a book. I was going, I was just thinking that before you we started this that. The, these eyewitness accounts that you and other reporters have 
of these trials is so important. This, these are real historic moments and we need as clear a record as possible. Who knows how all this story ends, but right. it ends at the right ending that we hope it'll. And we will need, future generations will need these kind of records and, and have, need the books said and truly understand how we got into this trouble that we did and how we can get out of it. Um, yeah. you, did you get to know Tario? Did, he, did you guys get to exchange? Did I say hi? No, no. His lawyers were certainly very friendly. Yeah. And that's the one nice thing. Lawyers will usually talk to you for the most part, even if it's just to shoot the breeze with you. And I will say that they were very approachable to the press, which some lawyers on that side of the conversation typically are not. But I didn't get to know Tario very well, no. But I hope to have a chance to interview him uh, for the book. I, I'm, I'm happy to speak to all of these parties involved and put everything that is said in the proper context. What's the one question you have for him? Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's uh, no comment. No comment. I'll reserve. Okay. Reserve sure. <laughs> the book. Brandy, it's great to have you on the show. I've been a fan of your work for so long, and I'm so glad we finally get a chance to talk after this momentous trial. I, there's a lot of hardworking, independent journalists in this field. Maybe not even a lot. There's probably very few of us now, but there's less than there used to be. But uh, it's, you're one of the greats, and you've done a terrific job of, of bringing us some incredible insight. Now, your thread on that uh, of Sentencing Day was remarkable. Everyone should go back and read it. and Everyone should follow you on Twitter or X. Uh, and anywhere else you want to promote. So do you want to tell everyone where they can find you and how they can find you? Yeah, these days you can still find me on Twitter or X under Brandy Buckman. You can find me on Mastodon or Blue Sky under the same name. I'm the same place everywhere. I'm freelancing for Long Crime News, and I hope to be covering Trump's trial in D.C. beginning in March, and we'll have plenty of live tweeting to go there. Well, I hope you'll come back on for that. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Randy Buckman, thank you for this enlightening conversation about the Enrique Tario trial and just a better understanding of how the January the 6th conspiracy came together. And My really appreciate your insights. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Brandy. Thanks, so. Cheers. Have a great day. Every minute of Narrative's reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative, where truth lives. One day, you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative. Where truth lives. <laughs>